a, what a great morning already. I got to tell you, I, it was rough being in the Dominican worshiping with a bunch of pastors, I admit. Um, and yet, I just want to be back here. This is, this, is, this is where I love to worship together with you. Um, we're going to dismiss the kids. You guys can head out to children's ministry. Um, and uh, we're going to get into Exodus. Um, man, we, I, I love that song. We, we kind of had that song sitting in the... Uh, sitting on deck for a while. I think that's a song for Exodus. We, we need to introduce that during Exodus. And, and what, a, what a beautiful thing it is to know that God um, from the Old Testament is the same God today. The, the things that he has done, um, he will continue to do. And uh, there's a, a popular preacher today who, who made the comment offhand that the church needs to unhitch from the Old Testament. There's too much baggage there. Um, they found there was a lot of university students that would go away, and, uh, and, and through the course of university, they began to question some of the things from the Old Testament and come back not believing uh, the Bible anymore. And so his solution is, we just need to, we just need to let go of that. Um, we just need to unhitch from the Old Testament. Man, if you, if you can't believe in a burning bush, what are you going to do with, with a Jesus that rises from the dead? Um, what are you going to do when Jesus comes back? Um, that God of the Old Testament is the God of today. And I'm so excited. I'm loving digging into Exodus and seeing um, that great and mighty God saying, this is who I am and this is how I work. And uh, we're going we're gonna to dig into chapter 4 today, just the first, uh, first 17 verses. Um, and we're going to see some excuses by Moses. Now, if you were to ask my kids, they would tell you that as a father, I have zero time for excuses. Uh, kids are terrible for excuses, and I hate excuses. And I, and I have a, uh, a hunch that I'm not alone in that. Any of you fathers, um, not, well, mothers too, I, I, I just see it from fathers. Any fathers hate excuses? Mothers, parents, okay? I can't, I can't handle it. Um, I ask for something to be, to be done, and, uh, and, and as soon as I see this excuse begin, I, I cut them off. I don't want to hear it. I don't care what you have to say. I want you to honor your father and obey. And, and I'm probably a little too eager in that um, more than a few times. Um, I've learned afterward that they had something to say that I needed to hear. And so I need to repent and apologize to them. Um, but excuses drive me nuts. And it's not just because it's inconvenient. It's because of what it communicates about the heart of the child, right? It's not just that, that they're stalling. No matter what use, words they use, they're displaying by their excuse, Dad, I don't trust you. They think they're smarter than I am. They believe there's something that they've seen that I haven't seen or that there's a better way to do whatever it is I'm asking them to do or that it just doesn't need to get done at all or at least not by them. Uh, excuses are a child's way of saying, Dad, I know you mean well, but let's, let's let me take this one from here. I got this. I know better let me make the decisions. I don't think you can handle it. I don't think you know what's going on. So as soon as my fatherly spidey senses begin to anticipate that excuse forming on the lips of my child, I'm, I'm going to knock it down. I don't want to hear it. If you remember a couple weeks ago, uh, we looked at Exodus chapter 3, God's call of Moses. And God is moving Moses from, from meandering in the wilderness onto, onto mission with God's message. And the first thing we saw in chapter 3 is, is that our calling is first and foremost a calling to worship. 
It's to see God for who he is. God appeared to Moses in the burning bush. He told Moses, take off your shoes. The, the place where you're standing is holy ground. And it says that Moses covered his face in fear of the Lord. That's where it starts. It's where everything ought to start. Our call to serve the Lord, our call onto mission for Christ begins with a view of his glory. It begins with seeing him as he is, standing in absolute awe and wonder and flowing out from that awe and wonder ought to flow our obedience. So out of that worship, God then calls Moses to action. He tells Moses, go. This is what I'm going to do. This is my plan. Now you go. Trusting in God, proclaiming God's message of rescue, both to Israel and to Pharaoh. And then finally, God tells Moses, that they will be rescued from Egypt. This plan will not fail. He says, yeah, Pharaoh's gonna put up some, some rebellion, some, some pushback, and I will crush him. And when you leave, you will plunder the Egyptians. You will walk out with all of their wealth. You will have total victory over your enemies. What an exciting passage of scripture. What a, what a cool thing to stand in awe and, and wonder of how God works in calling his people from, from meandering to mission, called to worship, called to action, and, and called to this certain victory. That's what we love to hear. That's what we want to be as the church. This is it. And then we turn the page to chapter four, and these excuses begin. To this point, Moses' questions could be chalked up to humility, he asks God, who am I to do such a thing? Who am I to, to go to Pharaoh? And, and the Lord says, it's not about who you are. It's about who I am. And, and in that, some other places, we, we get this idea that the exodus, God's mighty actions in Egypt is about him revealing himself. It's him saying, this is who I am. Moses asks, okay, who are you then? Who shall I say has sent me? And the Lord says, I am who I am. Wow. There's, there's, there's a tension as a preacher. Um, we can do Exodus in like 40 weeks that we're going to shoot for, or we can do it over like 40 years and just spend like six weeks talking about I am who I am. Essentially, God is saying, I'm just other. What am I like? I'm, I'm not like anything. Who am I like? I'm not like anyone. I am other. I am outside. I am above. Uh, I am who I am. Moses questioned takes a subtle turn then moving into chapter four. It's no longer humility or sincere questions. Uh, he begins to make excuses. And it ought to absolutely shock us that the God of the universe, the, the creator of all the great I am, doesn't silence Moses. He doesn't cut him off. The flames of the burning bush don't, don't turn into a, a white-hot blowtorch and just incinerate him right there like he probably deserved. But the Lord listens to Moses. He hears him out, and he answers him. I think we do well to see ourselves in Moses' excuses and to listen carefully to the Lord's answers. So let's turn our attention to Exodus 4, open your Bibles there uh, if you've not already. If you don't have a Bible on you, just slip up your hand. One of our ushers will get you a Bible. We want you to have God's Word open on your lap. Uh, I've said it before and I'll say it again. I have nothing for you. Sorry. Uh, if you came to hear me, um, I hope you're out of luck. The goal is that you hear God and that we go together to His Word. Uh, that's what it's about this morning. Uh, 
Let me read Exodus 4, starting in verse 1. Then Moses answered, But behold, they will not believe me or listen to my voice, for they will say, The Lord did not appear to you. And the Lord said to him, What is that in your hand? He said, A staff. And he said, Throw it on the ground. So he threw it on the ground, and it became a serpent, and Moses ran from it. But the Lord said to Moses, Put your hand, put, your, put out your hand and catch it by the tail. And so he put out his hand and he caught it and it became a staff in his hand that they may believe that the Lord, the God of their fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob has appeared to you. Again, the Lord said to him, put your hand inside your cloak. And he put his hand inside his cloak. And when he took it out, behold, his hand was leprous like snow. And God said, put your hand back inside your cloak. And so he put his hand back inside his cloak. And when he took it out, behold, it was restored like the rest of his flesh. If they will not believe you, God said, or listen to the first sign, they may believe the latter sign. If they will not believe even those two signs or listen to your voice, you shall take some water from the Nile and pour it on the dry ground. And the water that you shall take from the Nile will become like blood on dry ground. But Moses said to the Lord, O Lord, I'm not eloquent, either in past or since you have spoken to your servant, but I'm slow of speech and of tongue. And the Lord said to him, Who made man's mouth? Who made him mute or deaf or seeing or blind? Is it not I, the Lord? Now therefore go, and I will be with your mouth and teach you what to speak. But he said, O Lord, my Lord, please send someone else. And the anger of the Lord was kindled against Moses. And he said, Is there not Aaron, your brother, the Levite? I know that he can speak well. Behold, he is coming out to meet you. And when he sees you, he will be glad in his heart. You shall speak to him and put the words in his mouth. And I will be with your mouth and with his mouth and will teach you both what to do. And he shall speak for you to the people and he shall be your mouth and you shall be as God to him. Excuse me. And take in your hand the staff with which you shall do the signs. First thing I think we see in these first few verses is we need to trust God's power without a doubt. Like all great excuses, Moses touches on a very real concern. Lord, the hearts of your people, the hearts of Israel are hard. Lord, what if they don't believe me? What if I come to them and say, hey, the Lord has sent me. And they say, no, he hasn't. And what do I do? How do I answer that? And the Lord asks Moses, what's in your hand? Thank you. And I wonder if that point of Moses didn't feel a little foolish as he's making his excuses. What's in my hand? My stick? The Lord says, throw it on the ground. So he threw it on the ground and it became a snake. And it says, Moses fled. Moses is not an amateur. He he is a man of the wilderness. He's a a 40-year veteran shepherd now. I don't think he's scared of snakes. I think he knows danger when he sees it. I'm guessing that was a particularly venomous snake. 
We talked a few times through the, the first few chapters here about the imagery of the snake, this picture of evil pointing back to the serpent in the garden, uh, this emblem of Egypt, the, the emblem on the, the hat of Pharaoh and, and pre- representing the enemies of God's people, again, back to, to Genesis 3.15. And ultimately, this venomous snake is a symbol of death. You don't mess around with it. They don't have antivenoms. You don't get rushed to the hospital. You're, you're just done. So God tells Moses, now, this snake that you just ran from, grab it by the tail. Now, I don't know about you, I grew up watching Steve Irwin, so I know how to handle wildlife. Remember the crocodile hunter? He doesn't grab snakes by the tail. That's the wrong end, right? You want to have control of the end that can kill you, so you grab it right behind the head. Then you don't die. God says, grab it by the tail, and Moses listens. He grabs it by the tail. And it turns back into a staff. This is a sign for Israel, but the Lord is being sneaky, isn't he? He knows, I'll show you how Israel will come to trust me. Moses, maybe you ought to pay attention. Maybe you should listen here. This is, this is for Moses as much as it will be for Israel. He's telling Moses, I have power. I have power over Satan. I have power over evil. I have power over Egypt. I have power over death. This isn't, this isn't a problem for me. Don't doubt me. I, I have this. The Lord knows Moses' weakness and the hardness of the hearts of the Israelites. And so he doesn't stop there as if that's not enough. He gives him another sign. He tells him, Moses, put your hand in your cloak. And when he takes it out, his hand is like snow. And we don't know exactly what's going on here. Most translations use the word leprous. Um, the proper name for leprosy is Hansen's disease. Don't, don't Google it. Google Images is not, a, not your friend here. Um, but it's not white or flaky like snow. Um, it's probably not leprosy in a, in a technical sense as we would use it. Um, the word there, the Hebrew word, is kind of a general word for skin disease, which I think in our Christian circles, that's kind of how we've used the term leprosy when we speak of it in the Bible. Um, it's this, it's skin disease of some kind. But skin disease in that day was, was a horrifying reality. Again, you don't have hospitals and doctors. You don't have modern medicine. Um, skin disease wouldn't kill you, not necessarily, not right away. But it would cause you an incredible amount of pain. And it would make you an outcast and a horror to your community. It's contagious and we can't do anything about it. So you just need to leave you can't be anywhere near us as a civilization. And so you are in pain and suffering and cut off for the rest of your miserable, miserable life. It's a horrible, horrible thing. So the snake, I think, represents the quantity of life that God has power over life and death. And the skin disease represents the, the quality of life, suffering and pain and hardship and rejection. Of course, Moses, we know, has already been rejected by his people. He tried to save them as he killed the Egyptian taskmaster that was beating the Hebrew slave. And what did they say? Who made you prince and ruler over us? God tells Moses, put your hand back inside your cloak. You can imagine, um, are you sure? Like, can I, am I going to be contagious to myself? I, I'm still coming to grips with the fact that his hand is covered in this disease But he puts his hand back into his cloak and the Lord heals it. I have power over death, Moses. I have power over disease and suffering and pain. 
I've got this. I'm in control. I know what's going on here. And amazingly, God doesn't stop there. As if two weren't enough. As if these two amazing party tricks wouldn't have had the Israelites in wonder and awe. He gives them a third sign. He says, if they won't listen to the first one or the second one, hint Moses, if you don't catch the first one or the second one, listen to the third sign. They still will not believe you. You'll take water from the Nile. Now, this is the sign that God doesn't perform here. He's trusting that God will do this in time. You can take water from the Nile and pour it on the ground, and the water will turn into blood. It's the first of the ten plagues. I think there's some symbolism there. I think it's kind of a symbol of what will come out of that. The Nile was incredibly significant to Egypt. Um, Egypt is, is a desert basically built around one life-giving ribbon of water through the middle. And every year the Nile would, would flood and overflow its banks and deposit rich soil and life-giving water out onto the floodplains. And so that's where the Egyptians lived. And the Nile was incredibly important to them. They, they worshipped the Nile and they had numerous gods connected to the Nile. And, and so for God to attack the Nile was to say, I'm Lord over the life and thriving and health and existence of Egypt, of your worst enemies. I've got this. I have power over evil and sin and death. I have power over disease and suffering. I have power over Egypt and your enemies who threaten you. Trust in my power, without a doubt. Don't, don't make these excuses. It's not about you, Moses. It's about me and what I'm going to do. And I am the great I am. That's what makes Moses' excuses even more shocking. If God is displaying who he is and the the greatness of his character through these mighty works. And Moses is questioning, are you enough, Lord? Can I trust you? By his excuses, he's bringing into question who God is. Moses' problem is a worship problem. He doesn't see the glory of God clear enough. He doesn't get it. He doesn't grasp the full picture of the great I am. So he doubts and he makes excuses and he he draws into question the glory of God. And we talked about this in chapter 3, that God has called us in a way that is parallel to the way, he, the way that he calls Moses to proclaim his good news, to be messengers of God's salvation. God has his people, his chosen people. We should think of uh, evangelism through that lens. We're going out to Israel to find God's chosen people, his sheep that are scattered. They live right now under this burden under slavery in sin, like Israel in Egypt. And Moses was to go and to proclaim to Israel that God would set them free, that he would rescue them. Where do you do the same? We go out to proclaim this gospel, this good news, that God has brought rescue for all those who would put their faith in him. How often do we, like Moses, Balk at that task, making excuses, the same excuses that Moses makes. Lord, they won't believe me. What if they don't listen? What if they think I'm foolish? What if they laugh at me, God? 
we fail to share the gospel because we fail to see the glory of God for what it is. We don't really believe in his power. And you say, well, that's not fair. Moses had these three signs, these, these miraculous wonders that God did, that he got to, to see what a, what a great advantage Moses had. What signs do we have? We don't have that, do we? Reminded of Matthew 12. Then some of the scribes and Pharisees answered him saying, Teacher, we wish to see a sign from you. And he answered them, An evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. And it should be noted that moments before these scribes and Pharisees are saying, hey, Jesus, prove it. Give us a sign. Show us that you're a prophet from God. He had just finished healing the man with the withered hand. He had just finished casting out a demon from a man who was mute and blind. He, he had given them ample proof. That's why he's saying, you wicked and adulterous generation. He's given them plenty of proof that he is the Messiah. But rather than pointing back to those lesser signs, he points them forward to a greater sign that will come. The greatest sign, the sign of Jonah. That just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the heart of the sea and was brought up again, that so Jesus would be three days and three nights in the grave and brought up again to life. That's the sign that we have. We have this empty tomb. We have this amazing sign. Not only a promise that God is more powerful than death, that he will overcome evil and our enemies, but proof of it. He's done it. He's gone through death and come out the other side. God has called us to this mission, proclaiming his good news, proclaiming salvation to the lost. Do you trust in his power to save? Do we trust him to overcome the hard hearts of our neighbors and friends and co-workers? Do we really believe he can do it? Don't doubt his power. He will overcome hard hearts. He will save. Listen to John 10, 16. Jesus says, I have other sheep that are not of this fold. I must bring them also. And they will listen to my voice. So there will be one flock, one shepherd. There's no question in Jesus' mind if this is going to happen or not. John 6, 37, he says, All that the Father gives me will come to me. And whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. It's going to happen. He's going to do it. And we have this privilege of being a part of that, of being voices of Christ calling out to his lost sheep, saying, come. There's life, there's freedom from sin and death. And seeing the power of God work in transforming dead, sinful hearts. Bringing them out of the kingdom of darkness and into his glorious light. We've been called on this mission. We need to trust God's power without a doubt. He is able, as we proclaim this message with confidence, that those who are his sheep will hear, will follow, will be rescued. Moses, like us, can't leave it there. Even in the face of those three signs, God has gone over and above showing his power to Moses, and yet he offers another excuse. Okay, God, 
I get that you can overcome, that you're powerful. But what about my own weakness? I don't think I'm your guy. So verses 1 to 9 say, trust God's power without doubt. I think verses 10 to 12 call us to trust God's providence without fear. Look at uh, verse 10 and following. But Moses said to the Lord, O Lord, I'm not eloquent, either in the past or since you have spoken to your servant, but I'm slow of speech and of tongue. And then the Lord said to him, Who made man's mouth? Who makes him mute or deaf or seeing or blind? Is it not I, the Lord? Now therefore go, and I will be with your mouth and teach you what you shall speak. Okay, God, so I believe you can do it, but I think I'm the wrong guy for the job. Moses makes this incredibly ironic statement. He says, I'm not eloquent of tongue, and yet this is one of the most eloquent statements in the book. It's it's super complex in in Hebrew. He says, neither in the past nor three days ago nor since you have spoken to your servant, but I'm I'm slow of speech or I'm I'm heavy of of speech and heavy of tongue. So a quick hint, Moses, if you're going to argue that you're not eloquent, maybe cut the flowery language down. Much of Moses' writing is very eloquent. Some would argue that maybe Moses had a speech impediment, but if you read from here through to Deuteronomy, he does a lot of speaking, and it never seems to slow him down. It never gets mentioned. Maybe he was nervous. His Egyptian was a little rusty. He's been 40 years hanging out with sheep. Maybe he's thinking, how, do I, how am I going to keep up with the pomp and the protocol in the courts of Egypt? But the bottom line is this, it doesn't really matter, does it? Because it's an excuse. It's just another way of saying, God, I don't trust you. I think you've got it wrong. I think you've missed something here, God. And the Lord answers him saying, who made man's mouth? Who makes him mute? Who makes him deaf deaf, or seeing or blind? Is it not I, the Lord? That's what it means to trust in God's providence. God's providence is his sovereign control over every detail of our lives, his hand in and over it all. It's the fact that he works all things according to the counsel of his will. Moses is complaining that he's not a good speaker, and the Lord says, I know. I made you. I created your tongue. What's wrong with it? I made it to do exactly what I wanted it to do. No more, no less. And take note, the Lord doesn't just take ownership of the positives. Remember a couple years ago, uh, okay, quite a few years ago, sitting in church, uh, and the lady in front of us had, had a broken leg, and my mom was just chatting with her and encouraging her, you just need to trust the Lord in it. And, and her comment stuck in my mind and eventually changed the way I thought about God. She said, well, we know that God didn't want this because only good things come from God. What? God didn't want this? So was God not able to stop it? Or did he not know it was going to happen? What's going on? And and I'm probably drawing way too much of uh, assumptions into her theology. I I assume she's thinking of of James 1.17. Every good and perfect gift comes from the Lord. Absolutely. Um, But that, that theology of providence is so lacking. God says to Moses, I made man's mouth I'm the one who makes one mute and one deaf and one blind. I'm the Lord that does these things. I'm over it. Do we believe that? 
Do we believe that, that not only our strengths, but even our weaknesses are from the Lord? That not only our abilities, but also our disabilities come from Him? And that He actually makes those good gifts in our lives? It's not always an easy pill to swallow. But as I sat in church that day, missing the entire sermon, thinking about God's providence, the alternative is so much worse. That God's not in control? That now I've gotten hurt and, and God would have wanted to stop it, but he, but he couldn't? Or That's terrifying. Now, he made you for a purpose. Scripture is clear on this over and over again. Every detail of your life, of my life, is, is under his ordaining eye. And yet we fear. And we make excuses to avoid this mission that he's put us on, saying, I'm not sure if I'm the one. I'm not sure if I have the ability. I'm not really good at explaining things, God. I don't think you want me sharing the gospel. I don't know that I'm smart enough. You know, some people are just gifted at talking with strangers or, or starting these awkward conversations. That's just not me. That's not the way I'm wired. You know, People don't respect me like they respect other people. You know, there's some people that just speak and people listen, and that's not me. I, I'm not sure I'm the one. Hear it again. God knows your weakness and your failure and your insufficiencies better than you do. He built them into you, and far from disqualifying you from being his instrument of proclaiming the gospel, they are actually the exact thing that he uses to make you an appropriate tool in his capable hands. 1 Corinthians, Paul says in, in, in chapter 1, verse 26, Consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many of you were powerful. Not many of you were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even the things that are not, to bring to nothing the things that are so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. I think I got this locked down. I'm a good speaker. I, as people listen to me when I talk, I'm able to explain things well. I'm going to be God's superhero. And God says, no, 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 no. That's not the way it's going to happen. It's not the way it goes down. You will not get to heaven and say, look at all the things I did, God. No, he opposes the proud and he gives grace to the humble. It's God's grace. If we stop and look at ourselves and say, I'm, if this mission of God is relying on me, I don't know where this is going. I don't think this plane is taken off. God says, now you're my guy. I, I can work with that. Because when all is said and done, there's going to be nothing left to do but say, wow, God did that. What an amazing God we have. A little further down in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, Paul even Paul says, And I, when I came to you, brothers, did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God in lofty speech or wisdom, for I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. And I was with you in weakness and fear and much trembling, and my speech and my message were not in plausible words of wisdom, but in a demonstration of the Spirit's power so that your faith not, might not rest on the wisdom of men, but on the power of God. God doesn't need your help. He needs us to get out of the way. 
He doesn't need you to be strong enough, smart enough, wise enough, winsome enough. He delights to use the broken vessel. The more unfit we consider ourselves to be, the the more we're declaring, I'm the kind of person that God uses. When you think of what it means to share the gospel, um, I think we get easily intimidated by that. If you know enough to be saved, you know enough to be a witness. It really is that simple. You don't have to make some great presentation. Don't don't worry about hitting all the, the theological bullet points along the way. Just in weakness and fear and trembling, we're sinners that need a Savior. we've, We've sinned against God. We've done what's wrong. We know that. Your conscience knows that. And and Jesus died on the cross to take the penalty for our sin. If you would just repent and trust in Him, He'll save you. Isn't that great? It's so simple. Our our kids have got this figured out. They, They should be able to repeat that back to you at like, I don't know, five Sure, there's, there's an there's a ocean of depth beneath that that we can delve into, and we will over eternity, but, but the gospel is simple. And we ought to come in fear and trembling. I'll tell you what, my, my wife will tell you, up here I'm comfortable. This is, this is f- no problem for me. One-on-one conversations, now I'm letting my secrets out. You guys are going to look for it next time. I get shaky. I tremble. Um, that, that's harder That's what God calls us to, to come in fear and trembling. You don't need to be Billy Graham or Paul Washer. You need to be exactly who God made you to be. He saved you, called you, put you on this mission to proclaim the gospel. How how dare we make excuses? How dare we say, God, this tool that you have crafted for this particular role is not acceptable. Just need to let him work. We need to be willing. Trust in his power without a doubt. Trust in his providence without fear. And then finally, is to trust in his promises without hesitation. Verses 13 to 17, let me read them for us. But he said, oh my Lord, please send someone else. And then the anger of the Lord was kindled against Moses. And he said, is there not Aaron, your brother, the Levite? I know that he can speak well. Behold, he's coming out to meet you, and when he sees you, he will be glad in his heart. You shall speak to him and put words in his mouth, and I will be, your, I will be with your mouth and with his mouth, and will teach you both what to do. He shall speak, to you, speak for you to the people, and he shall be your mouth, and you shall be as God to him. And take in your hand the staff with which you shall do the signs." Just a side note that I can't leave behind. This is a really cool statement. I don't know if you remember, I've mentioned a couple of times how Exodus is this kind of foundation for so much systematic theology. Um, this is an amazing statement of, of inspiration. This is how God works through his prophets. This is, this is a, a, a foundational passage of how we understand scripture. God says, I will be with your mouth. Your words will be my words. And that messenger doesn't corrupt the message. This is, this is 2 Peter uh, 2.11, that, that no prophecy of Scripture came about by the inspiration of man, but men spoke as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. Um, that's just a neat passage there. But in our context, as we're 
looking at these excuses of Moses. Again, he began with humility back in chapter 3. Lord, who am I to do this? And he moved into excuses in chapter 4. They won't believe me. I'm not, I'm not eloquent in speech. I don't know that I'm cut out for this. And, and now we get right to the heart of it, and it's a refusal. Lord, send somebody else. I don't want to go. And at this point, the Lord's anger burns against Moses. That's a terrifying statement. I don't know about you, but as I process this, and I think about the times that I have made excuses, the times that I've had opportunities put in front of me to share the gospel, and, and I have doubted, and I have feared for my own weakness, and I have eventually, essentially said, no, Lord, I'm not doing it. How many times have I pressed this line? How many times have I crossed this line? What a gracious God we have that he continues to bear with us, to call us and to use us in spite of our disobedience. Thankfully, the Lord's anger isn't like man's anger. I read that the Lord's anger burned against Moses and you think God's about to come off the handle. Moses is going to die. It's not what happens. In, in the Lord's anger, he helps Moses. And he makes these promises. First, he tells him, Aaron, his brother, will be with you. Because Aaron has already left to find you. I love it. God's already answered the question before the question was asked. He's on it. He knew it was coming. Aaron will be thrilled when he sees you. And Aaron will speak for you. Again, irony. I don't know if you've read the rest of Exodus Aaron's not the guy you want speaking for you. Moses comes down the mountain. Where'd these golden calves come from? Oh, I threw the gold in the fire and they just came out. Wow, good call. Um, he's not a great speaker. But the Lord says, fine, Aaron will help you. He'll go with you. And then he promises Moses, I will be with you. I will be with your mouth and I will teach you both what to do. And then finally he reminds Moses, take your staff with you with which you'll do these signs. And again, this is an implicit promise. Remember, me going with you means my power going with you. And I will show my power. I will act on your behalf. And we have these same promises and more. We, like Moses, are not sent on this mission alone. We have the church. We've been gathered together as the believers to encourage one another, to support one another, to strengthen one another, to answer questions as we fumble along the way. This should be regular conversation in our small groups. Who are you sharing the gospel with? Who are you pursuing for Christ right now? Who are you praying for? How did it go last week when you had that conversation that you said you were going to have? We don't have to do this alone. But not only do we have one another Infinitely more significant, we have the Lord himself. What an amazing promise. Um, Jesus ends the great commission, right? Go to all the world and make disciples, baptizing them into the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching to obey all that I've commanded you. And behold, I am with you even to the end of the age. What a promise. Astounding. I'm with you. I'm going I'm to go with you on this. Acts 1.8. You'll receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you and then you'll be my witnesses. We have that. It's ours. Do we believe it? More importantly, do we dare put ourselves in the position to see it actually at work? I've never seen God work that way. 
Have you opened your mouth and shared the gospel? Given it opportunity? That's not always. We, we, the, the, the Spirit comes and goes at His own will. But have we given Him opportunity? If Moses hadn't obeyed and gone before Pharaoh, uh, he, he would have totally missed out on this amazing display of the glory of God and the power of God. The great I am has said, I've got your back. Just go. Speak the gospel and let me work. So we have the church and we have the Lord himself with us. And then verse 17, it almost looks like an afterthought. Don't forget your stick, right? As if Moses had somehow forgotten that a a minute and a half ago that stick was a snake. Um, Moses didn't need to be reminded to take his staff. He needed to be reminded of what it meant that that staff was coming with him what it represented. A staff is a symbol of power, a symbol of, of authority. This is a, a crude representation of the ruler's scepter. And it was Moses' staff that God would use to display his absolute power over sin and death and over the kingdom of darkness. It was that same staff that, that Moses would hold up to part the Red Sea. It was that same staff that Moses would use to, to strike the rock in the wilderness from which water would flow. For the thirsty Israelites, it's that same staff he would hold in the air uh, over the battle with the Amalekites and provide this miraculous victory. The Lord's saying, take your staff. I'll fight for you. Victory will be certain and it will be mine. He's telling Moses, stop making excuses and start trusting in my promises. Go in, go in confidence. Take that staff. Carry it boldly. Our mission is to go into all the world and make disciples, to spread the gospel, to share this good news with with family and friends and coworkers and neighbors and strangers with confidence. We don't go groveling and wondering. We go proclaiming the good news. Jesus ends the Great Commission saying, I will be with you even at the end of the age. He begins it saying, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. He's not losing this battle. It's not a question mark at the end of the Great Commission. There will be victory and it will be his victory. He promised, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not stand against it. The gates are the last defense, right? If you're relying on your gates, what does that mean? It means you've been pushed back. You've made your final retreat. You are huddled together now in your home with your women and children around you. There's nowhere to go. If those gates don't hold, you are finished. The gates of hell, the last defenses of the kingdom of darkness will not stand against the onslaught of the church. Praise God. Romans 16, 20, the God of peace will soon crush Satan underneath your feet. Do you know how that happens? you know how the church prevails? It says the gospel goes out into the world. It says sinners are snatched from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light. Matthew 24, 14, this gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all nations, then the end will come. The testimony, the victory of Christ. And we have this privilege of being soldiers in that army, of being sent on this unstoppable 
mission. Why would we make excuses? Why do we cower at this? Why are we not eager to, to get on this, to jump in, to be engaged? This is what we're about. And, and I got to confess, I struggle with this. I'm asking this question of myself. Why do I find this so hard? Because I do. This is a hard passage to preach because I'm sitting in my office and I have to say these things and I need to say them to me first. I got to own this. I wish I could stand before you as some great evangelist and say, just do what I do. I, I do this like five, six times a day. Come along. But to my shame, I can't. Because I, because I fall into these same excuses, this same weakness. So you, you thought I was preaching to you all this time. I'm, I'm preaching to me first. But it doesn't make it any less true. This is God's word. Um, I, I'm just the mouthpiece. And sometimes the mouthpiece has to be in here also. Actually, always. This is hard. And, and it's not just us. This is hard. These are statistics from the United States, but I'm sure they're no different here unless they're worse. Uh, 20% of churches are growing. 20% of churches are growing. And of those growing churches, 1% are growing by reaching lost people. Think about that. 95% of church growth across the United States and no doubt Canada is shuffling believers from one church to another, is closing doors over here and opening them over there. That's a fail, guys. That's heartbreaking. Now, Jesus is building his church. It continues to move forward. And North America isn't the only place on the map. But we've gotten so comfortable and so lax We've ceased to be the church. We've ceased to be doing what the church is called to do. It's written on our banner. It's the first statement in our mission statement, lost people saved. And, and hear me, I, I know I'm speaking one-sided. I know some of you have, have been doing this. I think all of us do at some level, right? We try and, and I hear stories of people saying, hey, you know, I had a chance to drive my friend to work and share the gospel with her and, and you know, chatted with my barber the other day. That's awesome. I don't want to diminish that. I don't, I don't want to beat up on you, but I want to be stirring us in this. I desperately want this as a church, and it needs to start with me and, and I hope bleed out to, to our elders and to all of us that we would be this church of just this pervasive culture of evangelism. This is just what we do. This is just who we are. Yeah, man, that, that redemption church, they're just, they're just going everywhere. Like they, You can't get them to shut up about the gospel. That's who we ought to be. That redemption church, they're, they're full of people that, that were like in the bar last week and now they're going to church. What are they doing there? Wow, God's at work. He's being faithful to do what he said he would do. That redemption church, they're a bunch of wimps and whiners. How come God's using them? Well, praise the Lord. Because he's good, because he's powerful. We need to see this call on our lives. That our deep, passionate, awe-filled worship of God would spill out in this clear proclamation of his glorious gospel to all who will listen with, with confident assurance 
Knowing that, that though people's hearts are hard and though we are weak and helpless, that, that we're on this mission together and God is with us and the gates of hell will not stand against the growth of the church and the ultimate victory of the church of Jesus Christ. Would you join me in that? We do this together. Now you might have some great lofty outreach evangelism plan. I want to hear that. I want to talk about that. I want to have a bunch of those conversations. Boy, we got a, a school over here that, you know, there's kids that are coming and they don't have meals. Can we, can we maybe do something like that as a church and begin to make an inroad there to share the gospel? We need, to, we need to figure that out. We need to figure out how to be reaching into the community in practical ways that gives us grounds to share the gospel. So let's have that conversation. But here's where I want to start. It's where I need to start and where I want to challenge you to start. Um, I think most of us have neighbors and we just have this immediate opportunity. I had some conversations with my neighbor, a little bit. I kind of know their spiritual background. I've shared with them. I get to cheat. They, they say, what do you do? And I say, I'm a pastor. And then I just keep right on going. Um, and they wish they'd never asked that seemingly benign question. But I just need to have my neighbors over for dinner. Maybe, maybe first time I just get a chance to, to share the gospel and tell them, hey, here's what we're about. Maybe it takes a couple of times, but we just need to be active in that. We need to pick a, we need to pick a week this summer and just say, we're just going to have a community barbecue just to have everybody over and just have opportunity to build those relationships and be sharing the gospel. Who do you have? Who's your neighbor? Who's your coworker that you maybe drive back and forth with or find yourself around the water cooler with? Maybe you just need to begin that relationship. Now, let's, let's not stay in relational circling for 20 years, hoping they get the gospel, but let's begin a relationship that we can use intentionally to share the gospel without excuse. We need to get on this. Um, this day is coming when the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of God as the waters cover the sea. I want to be a part of that. I want to be able to say, Lord, I was there. I want to hear, well done, good and faithful servant. I want redemption olds to have made its mark on the world, the spread of the gospel, the glory of Jesus Christ. So here's what I want us to do. I want us to just take a few minutes. Somebody came to your mind. You couldn't help it. Somebody popped in. I want us to pray for those people and for ourselves that, that God would cut down our excuses, that he would give us boldness, that he would help us to trust uh, in his power and that he would work in the hearts of those to whom we speak. So I want you to turn and share with um, groups of like three or four. Um, share with your spouse, the person you're thinking of. I, I know you're thinking it, but when you say it out loud, then it's real, right? Then, then I got to do something about it. So I want us to turn groups of uh, three or four, just real brief. Maybe it's just the name or you know, my coworker or my neighbor, uh, and, and then pray with one another. Pray for each other, for, for boldness, and that God would be at work in the hearts of those people. So I'm going to give just about five minutes. of the worship team come. You guys can, uh, we can pray up here. And uh, we'll, we'll just spend a few minutes in prayer together as a church. And, uh, and I'll close us in prayer and we'll close in worship.